I appreciate your patience in remaining throughout the day in spite of having to set through, uh, what is it, three lessons, you're still here. So I appreciate your patience and, and mostly in, in, in all seriousness, in, in all seriousness, I appreciate your love for the truth and your love for the word and your kind expressions that you've made regarding the truth concerning the subjects that we've studied and how that our goal is ultimately to glorify Christ. And I believe that as we study, I think you've seen that, and I know that I see that the more I study the subject of angels. And in truth, any study in the scriptures, I believe they always all reveal that Christ is the centerpiece of God's plan for man, no matter what you study. Decided tonight that I want to talk about the cherub, or the cherub. You remember when we talked the uh, first night, we uh, talked about the different kinds of angels, and we found that the cherub was one of them. And I expect everybody to read all that text. (laughs) What I did, I just threw every verse up on the screen to show you, that's every place in the Bible that mentions cherub or cherubim, right there. Generally, these fall into about four categories. That's the word right there in Hebrew, and it is the Aramaic word for just a generic word for angel. But there is a classification of angels called cherubim. They are the angel that was placed at the Garden of Eden. When God cast man out of the Garden of Eden, he put cherubims at the four uh, to protect the way of the Garden of Eden. When God instructed uh, Moses to build the tabernacle, he had cherubim interwoven into the various things that they built into that tabernacle. When Solomon built the temple, there were cherubim throughout the temple on the post and on the veil and all the different things that were in the temple. And then all throughout prophetic visions in Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and different visions in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when prophets would see visions, quite often cherubim were involved in those visions. Looking into the temple and the tabernacle, it is clear that cherubim have a special place near or surrounding the throne of God. And so it's an important angel. It's the angel that God chose to protect the way to the tree of life. And we think of that, you read that in the book of Genesis, you think, well, that means that they had to keep man out. Don't read that into that verse. That's not what the verse says. The verse says that the angels were placed there to keep the way to the tree of life. And I believe part of what the mission of those angels was is to keep that way protected for later access. You and I have access to the tree of life through Christ. And that way has been protected through the ages, and God chose cherubim to do that task. And so cherubim are an important angel when you study the subject of angels. Now, we could study any one of those verses or any one of these subjects and spend a lot of time. You could take the book of Ezekiel and the prophet Ezekiel, and there's like 10 chapters that describe these cherubim and what they do, and we could study their relevance But I decided tonight that I want to focus on one particular aspect of the cherubim because to me, it's the most central to our salvation. It's the one that matters to us the most. We draw our thoughts and we'll think about mostly the passage here in Hebrews, the the ninth chapter beginning in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, just exactly what is it that he wasn't able to talk about? What is it that he is not able to? 
in that passage to go into detail and describe. Now, anytime somebody says, I got something here, but I can't tell you. Boy, does that make us curious. It just piques the interest. What, what is it that the writer of the book of Hebrews could not now speak in detail? I believe the scriptures, it will tell us, if we study the scriptures, will tell us what it is he had in mind based on the material he was talking about and the material that's in that context, what he was discussing. What is it about these cherubim overshadowing, these cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat? Something important about these angels in this particular location, these angel figurines that were here on this Ark of the Covenant, something very important about them, something that he was not able to speak about in specific detail at that time. That's what we're going to study tonight, that aspect of the cherubim. Well, obviously, if it has to do with the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and the tabernacle, we're going to have to study some about the tabernacle. That's what we're going to have to do in order to get back to the basics of what he's talking about. And in order to do that, I think it's important for us to understand why that's going to matter. The 8th chapter of Hebrews, just a few verses prior to this statement, watch what he says. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Let me make an illustration here briefly, and then I'll talk about how, how, why this is relevant. Imagine God's light of glory, his eternal light of glory, shining down the stream of time. The most brightly illuminated event, the most brightly illuminated thing that God's glory cast its light upon is the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing more brilliant, nothing more important. This is where the greatest love intersects the greatest wrath. This is where the greatest act of kindness intersects the greatest act of hate. This is where so many things pivot in God's creation, the cross of Jesus Christ. As with all lights and images, there is always a shadow cast. Notice my hand cast a shadow on the board in front of you. You can tell from the shadow that it's a hand, but it's not really a hand. It's just the shadow of a hand. Well, likewise, the light of God's glory shining upon the cross would cast shadows. Of course it would. It cast shadows back into the old covenant, and the shadow that it cast is the old law, various attributes of the old law. Now, that's what Hebrews 8 and 5 is saying. These things, and he lists a lot of them in regards to the tabernacle, the priest, the blood, the covenant, all of those things, he says, serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. This is the heavenly thing. This is the copy or shadow. This is the image. This is the shadow. This is the real thing. This is the type of it. Okay. Now, God told Moses, make it according to the pattern. The writer says it was important that Moses made things according to the pattern because God was using those things to demonstrate his plans to come. So that when a person looked into the tabernacle, he would see things. He would understand things. There would be things there that would teach him about days to come. He could look at these shadows and learn about future events. Let's illustrate it another way. Let's say that I was standing right here, and this is a building. And as I watch on the ground, I see a shadow begin to form on the ground. And I look at it, and it's moving this way, the shadow is. 
And it seems to have the figure of a person. And so I'm looking at it. And I say, well, there must be somebody walking that way because the sun's over there and here comes the shadow. And as it comes along, it's getting bigger. And all of a sudden, you know, it's got big, broad shoulders. And, and I see it. And, I, and the closer I get, the more detail I can tell. But it's not a person. It's a shadow that I'm seeing. But I could tell a lot about whatever. And as it gets closer, I'm saying, man, this is really ugly, whatever this thing is. And boom, here Nathan walks around the corner. <laughs> you just had to see that coming. <laughs> you see, a shadow tells you what's coming. The Old Testament, all of those things in the Old Testament were shadows of things to come. Therefore, Moses was told, make it according to the pattern, because it matters. We never know when God gives us instruction how the smallest detail might be very, just the very detail that matters. It may be a shadow of something to come in our heavenly home. Don't know. Moses may not have known that the temple or the tabernacle that he was building was a shadow of the coming kingdom, you see. There's all kinds of things that could be possible. So when God tells us to do something, we have to do it in faith, that to know that there is a reason for it. God told Moses, you build things according to the pattern because it matters. It may be demonstrating something for a future day. All right. These cherubim were a shadow of something. They were going to tell somebody something. They were significant about something. So let's go back and reflect on the building of the tabernacle and what happened. I believe that to be the route of the children of Israel out of Egypt. They came over to the place we call Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where they received the Ten Commandments. They received the instructions concerning the building of the tabernacle and the worship around the tabernacle. And they received all the various other laws that uh, God had for them to, to uh, uh, obey. They stayed there at that mountain about two years while God gave those laws and while they constructed the tabernacle. When they were through, they built the tabernacle up, put it all together, and they began their journey into the wilderness. They journeyed through the wilderness 40 years, finally went into the promised land where the tabernacle was the place where they worshiped God. Finally, Solomon one day built a permanent temple which more or less was a replacement for the tabernacle. That's the tabernacle. This tabernacle looked something like this. It was a tent. The word tabernacle means tent. Tabernacle was a tent with a courtyard around it, a fence. This fence was built out of wood slats with animal skins and scarlet linen, different things that made it up as different layers. Every time they would set this thing up, they set it up the same direction. This was always east. This was always north. That's the way it was always oriented. Three tribes would camp on this side, three on this side, three on this side, three on this side. The tribe of Levi was in and around the courtyard. This fence enclosed what was called the court of the Gentiles. Inside that court was the altar of the, of the uh, sacrifice, the brazen laver, and the tabernacle itself. It was always set up like this. This was a shadow of things to come. Let me tell you what the shadow was. This represents the world, the court of the Gentiles. All of mankind is in this fence. Through our offering of repentance and buried with him in baptism, we can come into the tabernacle or the kingdom of God. Every time the priest went in there, they had to offer sacrifices and wash in the brazen laver. They had to do that every time. When you go in here, you're in the kingdom of God. This is where God said he would dwell. That's the dwelling place of God. In this photograph or this picture here, you see that little pillar of cloud right there? That's they're trying to demonstrate the, the, the pillar of cloud that they followed them that rested over the tabernacle when they set it up. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, more in a moment. Anyway, this was the layout of the tabernacle and its courtyard. When you look at the floor plan of the tabernacle, it was like this. This is the entrance. 
that we showed a while ago that was over here, actually. This is the entrance facing the east. When you go into the tabernacle, on your left would be the lampstand, seven golden candlesticks built out of gold. On your right would be the table of showbread, built out of acacia wood, covered in gold. Immediately in front of you would be the altar of incense. This is the altar where, for example, Nadab and Abihu altered strange fire, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. Two-thirds of the way into the tabernacle was a veil, a thin veil that you could look through and see through, but still only darkly, see through darkly. This veil had angels woven into it. On the other side of this veil was called the most holy place. This is called the holy place, the most holy place. If you want to run these references later, you can. I'm not taking the time to read all this because it would take too much time. In the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was where the, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, some of the manna, the things that we read about. This Ark of the Covenant is where the cherubim are. So that's where we're going to look. But understand what we're looking at when we look at this. We're seeing the kingdom of God in the new covenant age. What we're seeing is coming into, if you will, the church, where thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. In the, in the assemblies of the church, we read and study the word of God. It's what lights our path. It is our source for everything. When they offered fire on the altar of incense, the fire came from the lamp. When they burnt uh, sacrifices outside on the altar, the fire came from the lamp. They were commanded never to get fire anywhere else. Our source for what we get, we get from the lamp. It is our source for the fire in our worship, if you will. When they, the lamp was the only light they had in there. If you were going to see in here, you saw because of that lamp. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. It lights our pathway as we live and serve in God's kingdom. The table of showbread is similar to the Lord's Supper. The altar of incense, if you'll think in Revelations, the, the prayers and songs of the saints are said to go up before the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor, just like this incense was burned. So you can see that this represents, in a sort of a loose way, the worship of God in His kingdom. The only way to get to the most holy place is through the holy place. There's no other way. And the way to get into heaven is through the kingdom of heaven here on this earth. You must be born again, the Bible tells us. You must come into the kingdom of God. You come into the kingdom of God, then, from our perspective, we can see through the portals of heaven darkly. It's a veil between us and our eternal home where we can see God on the other side through that veil. But he's over there. Someday that veil will part. We'll be able to walk in. There are a million things here to talk about. We could talk about the priest going behind the veil and offering blood. We could talk about David eating on the table of show. There's a tons of things we could talk about. All of them in the Old Testament were shadows of things to come. All of them help us learn more about the new covenant. We're going to focus on this Ark of the Covenant, because that's what the Hebrew writer said. There's things about that that he wasn't able to get into in specific detail. When you look at the Ark of the Covenant, from the opening of the tabernacle, this is something, this is an artist's rendition of what it would look like. You would see in this case, the veil is pulled back, it's opened, so that you can see into the most holy place. On the left, dirt floor, first of all. On the left is the candlestick. On the right, table of showbread. Here's the altar of incense. There were columns here that uh, held the thing up. This veil is pulled back, but you can see maybe, I think my clicker may be going dead on me. You can see the angels woven into the uh, fabric of that cloth so that you would get the impression that as you're looking into the holy place, the glory of God would backlight that curtain and make it look like angels were flying everywhere. That's what it would look like if you were in the tabernacle looking into the most holy place. Of course, this curtain is drawn back, but behind that would be the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant, and as we'll see in just a moment, the glory of God that dwelt between the cherubim. This passage describes the construction 
of the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen the movie Indiana Jones, it's pretty accurate. <laughs> if you read the text, follow the text, what they show in Indiana Jones is it's pretty close to what it must have been like. Uh, we don't know exactly because all we have is the verbal description of it. But the verbal description matches a lot what men have portrayed and what we'll show in just a moment is a likely uh, replication of that Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to read this text because it's important to understand how the thing was built and what the elements were because this is what he could not speak of in detail. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So this is God telling Moses, Moses, make it like I tell you. Don't change it. Make it like I tell you. Moses may not have known, but God was telling him how to make this thing mattered to you and I tonight so we could study it and see what the shadow is telling us. That's why it's important to do what God says. We never know what the purposes may be behind his instructions. Pardon me. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width. A cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings, the size of the ark. The ark may, may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seed of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim at one end, the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, one piece with the mercy seat. In other words, the two angels and that lid or that mercy seat, all one solid piece of hammered gold. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. Don't forget this. They're going to face each other and their faces shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. This mercy seat was always a curiosity to me growing up. As I studied the Bible, and even when we lived at Weatherford, Mike, I used to would sit down and draw pictures of this ark, and I would, and I found some of those old pictures that I drew, and I drew it with the box and the, and the kind of like this, and the little border around the top as he described, and the rings and the poles and the two angels, and I always drew it with a little chair right in the middle, because it said there was a mercy seat there. Well, when the internet came along, and I started looking at various artist renditions of it, nobody had the chair. And I said, these guys have got it wrong. There's a seat there. There's a mercy seat between the two angels. And I go, why is that? But why does nobody know that there's a chair there? It says that there's a mercy seat there. Well, there's not. That's not what mercy seat means. I looked the word up and began to study it a little bit. I learned more about it. The word for mercy seat is kaporeth, which means to paint. When Moses was, or rather when Noah was commanded to, to cover the ark within and without with pitch. It was described as kaporeth, smeared on. Kaporeth is the word used to describe anoint. If I was going to anoint somebody with oil, I would kaporeth, I would rub that on them. Mercy seat, the word for mercy seat, comes from and is literally from this word paint, which 
is the word the priest used to describe a payment for sin, an atonement for sin. It's not a seat literally, it's a seat figuratively. You might describe, uh, I guess Denton is the county seat. It's the county seat. It's not like there's really a chair here that represents it as the county seat. It's the seat of the county government. The spot between these two cherubim is the seat of God's mercy. It's the institution of God's mercy. And that's why that anybody that ever draws the thing, the, the old rabbis and all those guys that draw the thing, they never put a seat there. Because there's not really a chair there. It's a location. It's an institution. Between the two cherubim, immediately above this lid that was going on, that this spot, this place, this space right there is called the institution of mercy. The place of God's mercy. Okay. That's what was described for uh, Moses to build. Exodus, the 40th chapter, they finished building the tabernacle and began putting the thing together. Now remember, during the day they followed the cloud. At night they followed the, the, the pillar of fire. Okay? This is what they did. When they went to the mountain, they came close to the mountain. They saw the mountain on fire. The glory of the Lord was there in the mountain. All right? And he raised up all the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So immediately when they put the last piece up, this cloud that was there with them that they'd been following moved and it moved over and it covered the tabernacle. And then it went into the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even go in there because the glory of God was in there. All right. Leviticus 16 verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. When God went into the tabernacle, he found a place where he stayed. The glory of God came and rested between those two angels on the, top of that, on the top of that Ark of the Covenant. This spot called the mercy seat is where the glory of God was. And so God told Moses and Aaron, don't just come in here anytime. You'll die. There's certain things you've got to do before you come in here. You better go in there with some reverence, with some humility, because this is the seat of God. This is the institution of the mercy of God where these two angels are looking. Don't come in there just any time. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Numbers chapter 7 verse 89. Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. The Bible talks to us a lot about Moses speaking to God. I believe this is the way he normally did it. This occasion's described to specifically imagine this is the ark of the covenant moses standing here with the veil in front of him he can see it in a veiled way through this veil this ark of the covenant with these two angels and the glory of god between the angels moses standing here looking down and god speaking to him from between the two cherubim that's how moses was said to speak to god here god is between those two cherubim as the history of israel moved along we continue to find God dwelling between these two cherubim. Notice 1 Samuel 4, verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. 
So he describes the Ark of the Covenant and God dwelling between the cherubim. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2. And David arose and went with all the people who were there from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. God is still said to dwell between the cherubim. Psalms 80, verse 1, describing this says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherub, shine forth. This must have been a brilliant scene to stand there and look at this Ark of the Covenant. And right between those angels, the very presence of God is shining forth. Okay, that's not very good, but... God was there between those cherubim. The very presence of the glory of God. Don't just come in there anytime. I want to observe. Now remember, this is a shadow of things to come. Moses, build it just like I tell you. Follow the pattern, it matters. There's going to be a lesson here. Something to teach us something about the kingdom of God. God told Moses, you build it just like I said, it means something. Notice the fixed position of the angels and notice where they're looking. God was very specific when he told them how to make it. Make sure that these angels face each other with their wings covering it and that they're always looking in the middle. If you remember the verbiage, I read all that for a reason. The verbiage was very clear in describing that. Pretty interesting to me that it is very important that these angels have this fixed position, always looking at the mercy seat, always looking at the dwelling place of God, this institution of God's mercy. Okay, let's put that on the shelf. We'll come back to it. Up on the shelf. <laughs> There's a lot to that, but let's put it up here. We'll come back to it. Let's talk about something completely different for just a moment. First Peter, the first chapter, verse 10. Of this salvation... Talking about the salvation in Christ. The prophets have inquired and searched carefully and prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he was testified beforehand the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Things which angels desire to look into. I want to read the NIV version of this because it's a little clearer to me. It was revealed to them that they're talking about these prophets. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, you, us. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. I want to talk about that word desire for just a moment. Pardon me. It's interesting where you find this word used. The word desire, actually there's a couple of original Greek words that are translated into our one English word desire. So every time you read the desire word desire in the scriptures doesn't necessarily come from the same word. There is a word in the Greek language for desire that means a really strong longing, and that's why the word longing is used here. And it's only used four or five times in the scriptures. It's used when Christ told his apostles, with great desire, I long to eat this Passover with you. It's describing the, the way that Christ so anticipated that day that he would sit down and eat that last Passover with his apostles. 
That's the word used to describe in James, the first chapter, the overwhelming desire a person has in them before they commit a sin. This overwhelming desire. Remember it says when the desire is fulfilled, it brings forth lust and all that. That word desire there is that word. It's an overwhelming longing that you just almost can't say no to. It's more than just your garden variety desire and more than that. Now that's the word, interestingly enough, that's used here. Things which angels desire to look into. This is not just a simple curiosity. I've said that we're going to talk about curious angels. These guys aren't just curious. They're dying to know. It's a strong yearning, a longing they can't say no to. Think about, and pardon me for making this comparison, but it's the best way I know to describe it. Think about some sin that you're plagued with and how you just sometimes have such a strong desire to commit that sin. That's what James uses this word to, to show, this overwhelming personal desire you just cannot seem to say no to. Maybe it's an addiction or whatever, some incredible desire. Think about the, the amplitude of that desire, the strength of that desire. That's the way the angels feel about this. They can't take their eyes off of it. They long to look into it. What is it? What is it? Well, that's the reason I use the NIV. It kind of describes it. It is the thing that the prophets preached, the thing that the apostles preached, the thing that the Holy Spirit brought to us. It is the gospel. Angels cannot take their eyes off of the gospel, the salvation, the saving power of Christ. They can't look away from it. Interesting. Longing to look into it. Hmm. Especially when you consider this verse. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. We talked earlier, and I, I left some stuff out I wanted to cover earlier, but it wasn't in my slides, but please allow me a little latitude here that the scriptures talk about angels that fell. And we alluded to that Satan was one of those angels. The book of Second Peter and the book of Jude both specifically talk about angels that fell. It is a matter of scriptural record that angels have fallen throughout time. And I believe you can make the case that they have fallen on at least two occasions, if not more. I, that's one of those other 12 sermons that I just don't have time to get into. But nevertheless, whatever the case, angels have fallen throughout uh, the eternity of God's creation. They have fallen away from God's grace, Satan being an example of one of them. God never offers them a second chance. Watch what this verse says. He does not give aid to angels. When an angel falls, it's one and done. He falls, he's fallen. There's no saving him. On the other hand, God does give help to the seed of Abraham. You and I get second chances and second chances and second chances. You and I become sinners and we're given the sacrifice of the very Son of God to save us. We're given a second chance that trumps all other second chances. We're given the most amazing second chance, not angels. Angels, one and done. If they sin, they go to hell. No chance to fix that. No chance to repent. No, I'm sorry, God. No, nothing. When they sin, it's over. When they sin, boom, they're cast out of heaven. It's over. 
why do the angels to desire to look into something that they have no chance of receiving? Remember, angels have this overwhelming desire to look into the gospel, and they have no chance of benefiting from it. None. The gospel is not for angels. If you're like me right about now, we ought to be filled with humility and gratitude because God did extend us a second chance. He did give aid to the seed of Abraham. Not that we deserved it. Not that there's any righteousness in us at all. But he did. Now we have angels that can't look away from it. Here you and I are enjoying the benefits of a second chance. A chance to be with God. A chance to enjoy the blessing of being with God, a second chance. And this plan that makes this second chance possible, angels cannot look away from it. They're compelled to look into it. Now, let's go back and get those cherubim off the shelf. And let's talk about them again. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, the verse that we read, and above it, the cherubim of, of uh, gl the and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. These things we cannot now speak in detail. The word for mercy seat in, Hebrew, in a Greek is helisterion. Helisterion is a Greek word for more or less the same as the uh, Hebrew word to, to cover or smear, paint, an expiratory, a covering. So in Hebrews 9, the writer used the word helisterion to describe the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant. In Hebrews, the fourth chapter, that same word was used again when he said, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I want you to think about Moses, who was told to him, Don't just come here anytime. You come only in the way and at the time I describe. And here stands Moses with this veil and that Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God between those cherubim. And Moses, in a humbled position, listening to God. Now, you know what the Hebrew writer says? Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace. You know what we can do? We can walk right up to it. that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, we don't deserve that. You know what else? And the word throne of grace, by the way, is the word helisterion. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get in our mind. That's what was being predicted for you and I. That's the lesson of the Ark of the Covenant. They had to come before it with their hat in their hand. You and I can come boldly before God. All you do is you bow your knee and say, Our Heavenly Father, and you're there. And we can come boldly, boldly before the throne of God to find grace and mercy to help. Die with me. Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. The word propitiation is helisterion. Same word. When, when the Apostle Paul described what Christ did and what Christ was in dying on the cross, he described Christ as the mercy seat. Christ, you are the mercy seat. You are the very institution of God's mercy. You are the helisterion. You are the kafar. You are the thing, the very spot where God said he would dwell. You are the propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. You know what that mercy seat was between those two angels? That mercy seat is the cross of Jesus Christ. They can't stop looking at it. They can't take their eyes off of it. That's what Peter was talking about when he said things which angels desire to look into. You know why God had them make those angels always looking right there? Because that's true. Cherubim specifically, but I believe all angels can't take their eyes off of Christ, the propitiation. But now we've still posed a question. Why? They're not going to receive it. They have no part in it to receive the blessing of the second chance. But they still nevertheless can't look away from it. Can't take their eyes off of the cross of Jesus Christ and him died and crucified and died and resurrected the third day. The plan of the gospel, they cannot look away. They're so overwhelmed with desire to look into it. An overwhelming desire to look into it. They're not going to receive it. Why? I believe understanding why God created the angels will help us understand this. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Skipping down in the text, he says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. There are two very important pieces of information here that took me a while to come to grips with. First of all, all angels were created as our servants. That's what it says. Are they not all, big word, are they not all ministering spirits, the word ministering means servant, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister or serve for those who will inherit salvation, that's me and you. I just finally had to say it's time to stop denying what that verse says. That verse says all angels were sent forth as ministers of those that will inherit salvation. That's me and you. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve the cross of Christ either. I don't think we deserve any of this. It's not about deserving. Not that at all. We went past that a long time ago. This is about the love of God shed abroad upon us. That's what this is about. God created angels to serve those that would inherit salvation. Secondly, he said in this text, he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. The heavenly realm of the future will not be in control, will not be controlled by angels. It will not be in subjection to angels. Angels will be servants in that realm. Now let's put with that a couple of other verses. For by him all things were created 
that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him. We started off this verse last night. Jesus Christ, the angels were created by him and for him. Angels were created to do the will of Christ, and the will of Christ was to die in our place. So what we could say here is we could say that that is the purpose of an angel. That was their purpose, their created purpose. Now I want you to think about something for a second. If you have a purpose that you're going to accomplish, maybe today your purpose is to clean the house. Okay, let's pick something better. Today, your purpose is to go fishing. Today, I'm going to go fishing. Then what happens is everything you do begins to rotate around that purpose. And no matter what you have to go through, you're doing it so that you can fulfill ultimately your purpose for that day. It's your purpose. It's what you want to do. Try to understand this on behalf of angels. Angels were created for the purpose of serving those who would inherit salvation. They rejoice at the thought that there is a gospel whereby man could be saved. That's what they were created for. Their purpose would not be realized had Christ not died on the cross. Angels would have been created for nothing. They would have nobody, no purpose, no reason for being had Christ not died. Angels don't look at the gospel like a burden. They look at it with rejoicing. It gives them purpose. It makes their existence meaningful. Because they were created for the purpose of serving those who would inherit salvation. Notice Revelations 1 verse 5. To him who loved us, washed us from our own sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Angels, servants, you and I, kings and priests. Which brings us into this verse. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Substitute the word rule for judge because it's really that's a, 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 an accurate way to translate that. We're going to rule angels. Somebody says, what about the verse that says man was created a little lower than the angels? Acts descri- or Hebrews describes why that is for the suffering of death, but in the resurrection we're not going to die again. That factor is taken out of play. In the resurrection, you and I will judge angels. Again, earning, deserving, none of that has anything to do with any of this. I don't. And can't even, it even bothers me to talk about it. How could I judge an angel? I don't know. All I can do is tell you that it is the love of God that has shed abroad in our hearts these things. And that's why angels, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's their purpose. It's what they're for. And so when somebody embraces and obeys the gospel, angels have yet one more time fulfilled their purpose for their existence. The thing that God has ultimately created them for has been realized. And so tonight, listen to Ephesians 3 carefully. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship 
of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Let's read the NIV. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, we talk a lot about the church having the responsibility to preach the gospel to the lost. Somebody else is listening. Somebody else is intently listening. Watch what he said. The gospel of God, this great saving grace of God, might be made known by the church, that's us, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. God had a special blessing for the angels that they could lean over the balconies of heaven and listen carefully as the gospel is taught here on earth. The church is making known the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel to the principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly realms. So tonight, let's do them a favor. Let's talk about the gospel. They're listening. I can imagine them leaning over the balconies of heaven with their ears perked, waiting to hear the great story of the Son of God coming to this earth and being born as a, a poor infant. You can imagine them as their hearts are filled with joy when they hear the church talk about the fact that Christ lived a perfect life, sinless life. And I can think about how the angels would be a moment of worry as they hear that Christ was tortured and crucified. But then what a glorious thing. When they hear that he came forth from the grave. The angels are listening this evening. You think a lot about us hearing angels. Really what God is talking about is angels listening to the preaching of the gospel in the kingdom of God. The church making known the manifold wisdom of God. Now the final question is this. The gospel plan of salvation fills the world. It rings from city to city. It's the way man can have his second chance. Angels can't stop listening to it. How about you? How about you? Angels have their ears inclined to hear again, just again, how Christ died to save those that they were created to serve. How about you? You ever get tired of hearing it? Angels can't wait to another occasion when the church makes known the manifold wisdom of God. Have you told your neighbor? There's more than just your neighbor listening. Do you think the angels that fell would exercise a second chance if they could? You think the ones that are in Tartarus that Jude tells us about that were cast down in eternal chains and flames waiting the final day of judgment, you think they would take a second chance? How about you? The gospel call is available this evening. If you'd like to obey the Lord in the, 
and obey this gospel, this great manifold wisdom of God that the angels can't take their eyes off of. They're intensely curious about it. I wonder if they're curious about you obeying it. The gospel call is available to you this evening. If you'd like to obey the gospel, come forward, have a seat on the front while we sing the invitation song.